This morning we're in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We will be taking some, uh, a long time to you. This is a short, just a couple of pages here, but this will be our first epistle or our first letter that we're going through. Uh, much of the New Testament is letters written by the apostles and others to the churches. And they're dense. There's a lot said here, and it takes longer to go through an epistle than it does to go through a, a narrative account of, of an event happening in someone's life. So we're not going to rush. We're going to take our time, and we'll only make it through the first three verses this morning, and really we won't make it all the way through that. We'll, we'll continue on next week and keep going from there. But we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Please stand with me this morning to honor the Lord as we read his word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, to begin this letter, we have to look at the author of the letter, Peter. Who is Peter? I think it's worthwhile to take some time to look at the life of Peter, uh, a major character in Scripture. So we're going to start and kind of go through a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew and then John and then Acts, looking at the life of Peter who wrote this letter. In the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 4, verse 18, we see Simon, who is later to be called Peter by Jesus, and his brother Andrew fishing. And Jesus comes to them and says, follow me. And they do follow him. But I want you to see where Peter comes from. Peter comes as a fisherman, as a day laborer, not as a well-known person in the world, not as an educated person. Later on, he's spoken of as uneducated, which doesn't mean that he's stupid or ignorant, but it means he was not a formally educated person in any uh, normal sense of that word. And that he and his brother left their business and left their work to follow after Jesus. As it says later, we left everything for you, Lord, to follow after Jesus and say yes to his calling. In chapter 10, verse 2, we see, G uh, we see Peter as the first of the 12 named disciples. And he is part, as we see the outworking of the Gospels, as one of the inner circle of the disciples of Christ. There was a, a working in the way that Jesus dealt with his disciples. There was the nearest disciple to him, which is John, the beloved disciple. And then there's Peter, James, and John, who were welcomed into many different occasions that the other rest of the 12 were not. And then there's the 12, and then there are the general crowd of disciples, and then there were the masses. And Jesus worked his way outward in concentric circles in this way. But Peter was part of this inner circle of the disciples. In chapter 14, verse 28, uh, when called by Jesus, Peter steps out of a boat onto the stormy Sea of Galilee and walks on the water with Jesus for a while until his faith fails and Jesus takes him by the hand and, and lifts him up. He's an adventurous disciple, one full of faith. In chapter 16, verse 16, he makes this statement. He says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus asks him, who am I? 
And Jesus reminds him that you did not come to know this by yourself, but this was revealed to you by my Father, that you might understand who I am when others do not understand him. In chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus, uh, we see that he seeks to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross, which is interesting. It's a part of seeing how Peter misunderstood the mission of Jesus, and, and they were struggling during their time of discipleship to understand who Jesus is and what he was doing and why he was doing it. And when he seeks to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross, saying, may it, may it never be this idea of you being killed and, and persecuted, may these things never happen. Jesus rebukes Peter in the most strong possible terms, saying, get thee behind me, Satan. The idea that Peter is speaking not the, according to what God would have him to do, but according to what Satan is trying to do, which is undoing the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus is so patient with Peter as he is with all of the disciples in their learning and in their growth because in the very next chapter, he takes Peter and James and John up onto this mountain with him and there is the scene of the transfiguration where Peter sees the, the glory of Christ, the heavenly glory of Christ there on this mountain and they're enveloped by the cloud of the Shekinah glory of God and they are speechless as they see Jesus with Moses and Elijah. In the very next chapter, 18, verse 21, we see Peter asking a question. How often must I forgive my brother that sins against me? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, 77 times. So you must forgive him as many times as he asks you and tells Peter and the rest the parable of the unforgiving servant, which I shared with you this past week in our newsletter. We then go on to the Lord's Supper, where after the Lord's Supper, you have this, this bold proclamation by Peter when Jesus says that you are all going to fall away from me in my time of trial, and Peter says, though all fall away, I will never fall away. And Jesus says, well, actually, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. What a powerful, bold statement by Peter, but what a reminder of the weakness of humanity that even with all of his best intentions and all of the boldness of his heart, it was but to be a few hours before he would deny Christ Jesus three times as he is called out. Are you one of the disciples of Christ? And the third denial of Peter being the strongest, where he begins to call down curses upon himself and says, I do not know that man. What a change in just a few hours. But it is in John chapter 20, verse 6, that we see Peter running to the empty tomb. When the ladies come back and say, the tomb is empty, we have seen Jesus resurrected. He runs to the tomb, goes and enters into the tomb and sees the, 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 the burial clothes of Jesus in a pile there and his face cloth folded up and laid to the side. And Jesus uh, appearing to them on this beach after his resurrection because it's so interesting until Jesus sends them or gives them I should say this great commission and commands them to go out to all the nations to bear witness to his resurrection they don't do that they go back to what they did before which was fishing and so they're out fishing because they don't really know what to do with themselves and Peter is with one of these one of this group of the disciples and they see Jesus on the beach and in his zeal to see Jesus, he puts on all of his clothes and dives into the water and swims fully clothed up to the beach in this wet mess, comes out of the water to, to present himself to Jesus because he wants to be near him and he wants to see him one more time. 
And it's during that occasion that Jesus prepares a breakfast for them there on the beach with a fire, and it's a, it's a really special occasion. And it's the occasion where Jesus restores Peter by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says over and over, yes, Lord, I love you. And in the final time, you know that I love you. And this is so central, it's so important. He doesn't ask Peter, do you know what you need to know about me? Or Peter, are you doing what I've asked you to do for me? He asks him the most central question, which is the most central question for every single one of us here this morning. Do you love me? Are the affections of your heart turned towards the Lord Jesus? Because if you love the Lord Jesus, you will honor him and you will serve him and you will follow him and you will not deny him. And so Peter says, you know I love you, because the Lord knows his heart. But he goes through this exercise to restore Peter, not only in his own personal relationship, but before those that are watching. And three times he responds, if you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. What does this mean? Well, the sheep are those who are following after Christ Jesus. And Peter is going to have a particular role in shepherding those sheep, caring for them and feeding them, feeding their souls that they might understand who Christ Jesus is. That people that knew nothing of Christ might come to know who he is and what his will is for their lives, that they might live for Christ Jesus and that they might walk in his ways. And so Peter does. Peter goes on to fulfill this great call as a pastor and as an apostle, and he is never to deny Christ again, and goes on to faithfully shepherd and feed the church of Christ Jesus until his dying breath. We begin to get an account of this in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, which is the day of Pentecost. And on that great day when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the early church, it is Peter who stands before the masses and preaches the great sermon that he preaches there, calling people to come to salvation in Christ Jesus. And thousands of people are convicted and come to salvation on that day. In Acts chapter 3, verse 3, we see Peter and John those who were with Christ on that Mount of Transfiguration, instead in the temple court, preaching boldly, not denying Christ, but in the face of uh, threats and in defiance, they go and they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people might know that Christ Jesus has in fact risen from the dead and offers pardon for their sins by grace through faith. It's in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, that we see Peter in a central leadership role in the early church. It's Peter that presides over the situation with Ananias and Sapphira, where they lie to the Holy Spirit, and the Lord God uh, brings upon them the penalty of their sin, and they die in the midst of the church. In Acts chapter 10, verse 13, it's Peter who is given a vision three times as he is in prayer. And this vision is of a sheet full of all kinds of different animals descending, and this voice from heaven says, take and eat. And Peter's response is, by no means, because it's full of unclean animals, animals that they should not eat according to uh, the laws of Israel, those laws, those dietary laws that we spoke about some weeks ago that were to separate the Jews from the Gentiles. 
But three times this vision comes to him, and the purpose of this vision is to break down the barrier walls between the Jews and the Gentiles, because something is getting ready to happen in the church that is going to welcome the Gentiles into the people of God. And there will no longer be dietary restrictions separating the two, that there might not be fellowship between the two. And it's immediately following that, that by an angel, Peter is called to come to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius, a believing Gentile. And it's there that Peter is used of the Lord to first see the Holy Spirit come and fill the hearts of Gentile believers, where Cornelius and his household are filled with the Holy Spirit, proclaiming their belief in Christ Jesus, and are then baptized according to the command of the Lord. It's later in chapter 15 that Peter speaks on behalf of the Gentiles again, saying that the Lord is bringing together these two people because this was a, a sea change, a massive difference in the Old Testament to the New Testament that Gentile, a non-Jewish people could be allowed and even welcomed into a unified body of Christ that will become what we know now as the church. In Acts chapter 12, verse 6, Peter is imprisoned for preaching, and the church believes that he's going to be killed because James, uh, his other disciple, uh, his other brother in discipleship, was killed the day before by the sword, and the church assumes that Peter is soon to be killed as well, and so they gather together, and they pray, and they fervently pray into the night, and the Lord sends an angel to deliver Peter from his imprisonment. And he goes to join those who are in prayer. Great story there. We go on from there to church history as to what happens with Peter. And Peter goes to minister to the dispersed churches and eventually ends up in Rome with Paul. And Peter and Paul, ministering to the church there in Rome, are executed somewhere around 64 AD in the martyrdom of Nero as a wave of persecution goes through the early church. And according to early church history, Peter was crucified upside down because when it came time to crucify him, he did not feel worthy to even be executed in the same way as the Lord Jesus and asked instead to be upside down. And so Peter, this is Peter, a powerful and important character in the scriptures, one that is very much a person that we can identify with, with struggling in his faith, with failing in his faith, with zeal and going back and forth, but then finding his footing in Christ Jesus and going forward in boldness. It's in these first few words that Peter describes himself and claims his apostleship. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What is an apostle? An apostle, uh, and Paul often describes himself the same way in his letters at the beginning of his letters because it is an appeal to authority. It is saying that I am an eyewitness to the events and the, the life of Jesus Christ. It is something that puts Peter on par with the authority of the Old Testament prophets, a person that has received a word from the Lord, has been given a word from the Lord, and is now conveying that word of the Lord to the churches and to others so that they might know who he is and what he is doing. He is speaking on behalf of the Lord. 
and that it was recognized that those who were apostles had uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write scripture. And so what he is writing is not just a letter of encouragement, not just a letter of some good ideas that Peter has, but in claiming apostleship, he is claiming the authority to speak for the Lord uh, to them. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, we see that those who were first appointed in the church are the apostles. And that is accurate. The apostles were the first to go and speak and write after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus so that the church might be established, so that there might be clear scriptural writings after the Old Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that would guide the church from the time of the resurrection of Christ down to our present day. And so I would ask a question, though, because it's an, and it's an important question and one we need to answer. Do apostles still exist today? And I think that my, well, my understanding is clearly that they do not, that there are no more eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. There are no people living today that have seen what Peter saw or what Paul saw or what uh, John saw. There are no more people that stand in the same position that these apostles stood in. And that instead, the, the scripture is closed and is sufficient for our understanding of Christ Jesus. Closed meaning that there is no further revelation to be given. In fact, many places in the New Testament, we are warned against those that will give a subsequent or conflicting uh, word from the Lord, supposedly, that conflicts with what we have in Scripture. And that we are forbidden to either add to or to take away from Scripture. The taking away part or the adding has to do with the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe Rodney spoke to you about this some weeks ago. Sufficiency meaning that it is enough, that we have what we need. And I would argue to you this morning that if you spent the rest of your life studying the scriptures, you would not be able to get close to the bottom or plumbing all the depths of what we have in scripture. And those that go and seek so hard for a new and different word from the Lord and yet neglect the word of the Lord that we have before us, I, I do not understand. But the basis of this argument is that we do not need a further authoritative word from the Lord. And so those who claim this title of apostle today are working to consolidate authority to themselves. And in case there is any uh, discrepancy on this, I want to read a, a quote for you from C. Peter Wagner, who is one of the... Uh, founders of a new movement, not so new anymore, but it's called the New Apostolic Reformation. This is an interview that he gave to NPR some years ago. He is now deceased. He says this, in terms of the role of the apostle, one of the biggest changes from traditional churches to the New Apostolic Reformation is the amount of spiritual authority delegated by the Holy Spirit to individuals. The key words are authority and individuals, and individuals are contrasted with groups. Apostles have been raised up by God to have tremendous authority in the churches. And so Mr. Wagner is very clear, very clear, that the point here is to consolidate authority away from groups into individual people, that individual people in the churches might have authority over the churches. And he recognizes that this is a change. And I am warning you that this is an unbiblical change because what this does is it consolidates authority to a person and not to the scriptures. 
I want to be abundantly clear to you. I don't come to you this morning claiming to be an apostle. I don't come to you claiming any authority in and of myself at all. But that scripture is our authority. That we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. And that the scriptures are God's word to us. And they have endured over thousands of years because they are God's word to us. And that it's my role to try to understand these by the strengthening and the help of God's spirit and a gifting to teach but not a, an authority of myself, but of something that helps you to understand God's word so that you might also believe and apply God's word in your own heart and that you might understand the way of salvation and that you might understand God's will and then you might go walk in those ways. And so together we all sit under the authority of God's written word and that this church is intentionally organized not to consolidate authority in the hands of one person. It is intentionally organized to have a diversity of leadership that are accountable to one another. And I think that we have seen over and over and over the pitfalls and tragedies of personality-centric churches where people look to one individual as if that person were God and speaking for God. And I believe that this is the root of many cults and many false religions in our day. The Mormon church has the prophet, the person who is, whenever they need to adjust their doctrine, speaks and says something and changes the course of the church. Whereas now they don't want to be polygamous and racist anymore, so we're going to have the prophet speak a word and change the doctrine of the church. This happens in the Roman Catholic Church when they have the Pope speaking ex cathedra or speaking a word that changes the doctrine of the church. I will tell you there's no one that has the authority to redirect the doctrine of the Bible. There is no person that has the authority to stand and say the scriptures were wrong, we're now changing and we're going in a different direction. Because God does not change. His character does not change. His person does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I would argue to you that the the character of human beings, of men and women, also does not change. We drive different things, we have lots of gadgets, we, we, we wash our dishes in different ways, but the struggle of men and women in their souls with sin is the exact same struggle with sin as it was a thousand years and five thousand and ten thousand years ago. It has been forever we have been struggling with the same things that Adam and Eve struggled with. And so the word of the Lord is sufficient and the word of the Lord can minister and does minister to your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit to you today and will continue to do so until the Lord Jesus returns again. Well, who is Peter? Peter, uh, as an apostle, who is he writing to? It says that he is writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so there's a dispersion. The churches have gone out from the original seat of Jerusalem and in Israel to spread out. And the beginning of their spread is a northwestern spread up into uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bethania, all these places are in modern-day Turkey. If you didn't know that, it's important to know, and it's interesting and, and also a little disturbing that to go to Turkey today as a Christian missionary is a high-threat area, and yet that used to be where the church started. Now it is one of the great seats of Islam in this world. 
But the Christian church began in that area, and Peter is writing to those churches, encouraging them and instructing them in the Lord. But those that are written to are called elect exiles. So we're going to spend some time on a word here, the word elect. The word elect is not a, uh, an unusual word in the New Testament. The word elect is used 22 times in the New Testament. And as Wayne Grudem uh, states, a theologian who writes about these words, that these, these words are not um, used in a happenstance way. These words always refer to persons chosen by God from a group of others who are not chosen and chosen for inclusion among God's people as recipients of great privilege and blessing. And it's not a shocker for the people to hear language like this because it's carrying over from the elect or the chosen people of the Old Testament, the Jews, a people whose special favor and grace of the Lord was set upon of all the nations of the world to work out his purposes and plans. And now there is a shifting that God's people are no longer the Jewish people, but those that the Lord is bringing into his church. And so these churches and these Christians that are spread across Turkey are not in the church by happenstance. They are not people that have just stumbled their way into the church, but they are there for the purposes of God, and they are there by the work of the Lord. I understand this morning that speaking even this small bit to this word and to this theme strikes those of you here in different ways. There are some of you here that have been raised in this teaching and raised in this tradition, and it is not a big deal to you. It's something that you were taught from your childhood. There are others of you that have never heard this teaching before, and this is brand new to you, and you don't really know what you think about this. But there are others of you that have been taught and raised in churches to reject this term, and to define this term in a way other than what it means on its plain face value, or you have been a part of a church that has systematically skipped all passages that speak about these things. I have been in churches like that, where when we came to passages that dealt with, with words like this and other words that we're going to see throughout the epistle of Peter, the first epistle of Peter, they, they were simply skipped as if they were not there. And I've seen written curriculum where in a systematic, planned way, a curriculum was written to cover a passage of Scripture, and these things were skipped, omitted completely, as if they were not there. And I want to read a, a quote to you from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that I think is very important and applies to us as it did apply to him at that time as well. There are many Christian people today, it seems to me, who claim to be believers in the inspiration of the scriptures, but who nevertheless quite deliberately avoid large portions of scripture, simply because they are difficult. But if you believe that the whole of scripture is the word of God, such an attitude is sinful. It is our business to face the scriptures. One advantage in preaching through a book of the Bible, as we are proposing to do, is that it compels us to face every single statement, come what may, and stand before it and look at it and allow it to speak to us. Indeed, it is interesting to observe that not infrequently certain well-known Bible teachers never face certain epistles at all in their expositions because there are difficulties which they are resolved to avoid. I agree with him completely. There are many things in the scriptures that are difficult to us. As I have 
grown in my understanding of the scriptures, there are times where I'll take a pencil and write a question mark in the margin of my Bible because I don't understand what is going on there. And I, I have a difficulty in understanding what is happening there. But I am resolved, and I want to encourage you also to be resolved in believing in both the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And those two things together will help us through the scriptures, that God is both good and he is in charge, and that he is working out purposes in this world, purposes that are not always made known to us, but are revealed to us in the scriptures. And I am committed to you to continue in the method of preaching that I have brought to you in the past, that we will continue to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and I will do the very best that I can to help you understand the scriptures. And there may be times that we disagree with each other, but we must always be aiming for what is most important, which is the author's intended purpose in the scripture. Why did Peter write these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He used certain words and certain phrases to convey certain meaning. Just like every single one of us, when we communicate with others, either by word or in writing, we choose particular words to convey what we are trying to say. And if we... Uh, redefine those as being something that does not mean what they were intended to mean, then we have departed from the meaning of Scripture. And so what do the words of Scripture mean? What are their significance for our lives? First Peter is an unfolding argument, and so I will not try to argue all of First Peter this morning. I can't. And so I'm going to have to ask you to keep coming back week after week as we work our way through First Peter and what is going on in his argument here. But the salvation of God and the purposes of God in our lives are not simple and easy to grasp. We must keep listening, we must keep praying, we must keep studying. But at base, my understanding of what Peter is saying here to these people that are in exile, that have been pressed out of Jerusalem to other places, is that their following after Christ is not arbitrary. They did not just stumble into this church and stumble into this way of following after Christ. Every one of us here that believe in Christ Jesus as our Savior have come in various ways. And I do not believe that you stumbled into salvation. That the circumstances that brought you to hear the word of the Lord and brought conviction upon your heart were orchestrated by the Lord as he brought you to himself. Those that God has chosen. And that that is without any merit of our own. This is what it means that salvation is by grace through faith. It is a salvation that is unmerited by ourselves. And I think we must look squarely at this as we will continue to do over weeks to come. That salvation by grace, and this is interesting. I had, I had a, a, a person uh, ask me when I was in Africa. Um, let's see if I can get the question right. He said, if, uh, how, can it, how can we be sure that we have earned the grace of God? Very interesting question. How can we be sure that we have earned the grace of God? And I said, well, brother, if you earned it, it's not grace. And so we have to be clear on what grace is and that it is something that is unconditionally, meaning without condition, given to us by God. That those that come to salvation are not those that have the greatest moral goodness or those that are the most intelligent or those that have the highest standing in the world or those that are, uh, have wealth, that all of these things mean nothing. That the grace of God poured out to us and made open to us is without condition and because of his grace. But as we will get into next week at length, 
chapter 1, verse 3, is a crucial understanding of this. It has to do with the doctrine of regeneration, where Peter argues that the Lord God has caused us to be born again. And so how is it that we respond to God? How is it that we went from not caring anything about God or hating God or rejecting him to then coming under conviction of our sins and then believing in him? How did we, how did we make that progression? And I'm going to argue to you that it is a work of the Lord in your heart that you then respond to after the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, our passage this morning continues on with the Trinity. I'm going to say a word about the Trinity uh, because it's so absolutely important. It says, it, we have here this morning one of the few places in Scripture where we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all mentioned together, excuse me, together in one place. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The word Trinity is not a biblical term. It's a description of what we find in the scriptures. God eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and each person being fully God, and yet there is one God. And so there are three statements that summarize biblical teaching on the Trinity. And often we don't focus on this, but it's necessary that we understand that Orthodox Christianity from the time of Christ has always been a Trinitarian Christianity. That first, God is three persons, each distinct, meaning that God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. It is not a changing between forms, but three distinct persons. And I think what is most important to emphasize in this first statement of biblical understanding is that the Holy Spirit is a person, that the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not an energy to be harnessed. The Holy Spirit is spoken of as a person with a personal work in your life and in mine and in every believer and that he is personally carrying on the work of Christ Jesus who has ascended to heaven in a different way. Second, that each person in the Trinity is fully God. This most comes under scrutiny when we look at the person of Jesus Christ. People are always debating the divinity of Jesus Christ and the nature of Jesus Christ. One of the early struggles and debates over Jesus Christ had to do with whether Jesus was created or was eternal. And this was the Arian controversy in the third century. And so Arian was uh, tried and then condemned as a heretic at the Nicene Council. And it was decided and written into the Nicene Creed that the Lord Jesus is begotten and not made. And so this controversy of whether Jesus Christ is eternal or created by God and then subordinate to God has not gone away. It resides in every Jehovah's Witness uh, place that you see here. There's one right down the street for me where they go and teach that Jesus is made. He is a creature. He is one created by God and not co-eternal and co-equal with God as a part of the Trinity. And so they deny the Trinitarian nature of Jesus Christ in the way that they express these things. For many reasons, if Jesus were anything less than divine, he would not be sufficient to secure our salvation. And the third statement is that there is one God. One God. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to you. Christianity, if anything, is monotheistic, has always been known as monotheistic, coming from the ancient uh, 
words of the Jews in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The Lord our God is one. Three persons, one God. Isaiah 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. There is one God, three persons, one God. Many people have tried to bring analogies to bear to help us understand this incomprehensible mystery. But I would put to you this morning that for all the analogies in the Bible, and there are so many analogies in the Bible of helping us to grasp the unknown by comparing it to the known, that no analogy is given in Scripture to help us understand the Trinity. Because there is nothing that equates in this world to what the Trinity is. There is no analogy that can bridge the gap there. And so when we give analogies that go beyond Scripture, it does not help and in fact takes away from this stated doctrine. Because the Trinity is an axiom of Scripture. An axiom is a bedrock assumption. From the very beginning of Scripture, it is simply assumed that God exists in this way, making no defense for why it is this way or how it could be this way. And when people compare the Trinity to uh, ice and water and steam, the idea of a similar concept that's transforming from one form to the next, or a relational change, a, a person being a, a father and a son and a daughter or a mother and a father and a son, a father and a husband, and a son, or a wife, and a uh, uh, daughter, and uh, well, there you go, thank you. <laughs> too, many, too many things going on here, but you get the point. It's the, that's the idea of one thing continuing to morph, and to morph, and to morph, and this takes us into the heresy of modalism, that God is changing his character, and instead of having three distinct persons, we have a shifting character. But what we have here in 1 Peter is the statement of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what are they all working towards? They're working towards the salvation of the lost. They're working towards bringing in those that do not yet know Christ. God the Father knowing in his foreknowledge, Jesus Christ working in his atonement and the Holy Spirit in sanctification. And we will pick up with this next week in the work of the Lord and our salvation and in our regeneration that we might respond in faith, believing what God has told us, whereas we did not believe it before. And so I would call upon you this morning as I do every week. If you know that you have not believed these things and you know that the Lord is calling you to himself this morning, that in your heart you know I have never believed these things and I must, I should, I know that it's right that I believe these things. The Lord is working in your heart. Respond to the work of the Lord in your heart. Do not harden your heart against the work of God. Do not harden your heart when he brings conviction upon you. When we finish this morning, I'll be waiting over here to pray with you or as we've spoken this morning in a number of ways about baptism, and you know that you have never proclaimed publicly that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and in just a couple of weeks we will baptize again. And I encourage you to follow in obedience to this command of Jesus Christ.
Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you and I thank you for your word. Your word is not always easy. And we see in the times of, uh, at times in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that he had hard things to say to the people. Sometimes they went away, but many stayed and the church continued to grow. And I pray that you will help us in this church to look squarely at the scriptures and to read them as they stand and to ask you to help us to understand your ways, that we might believe in your sovereignty and your goodness, your justice and your mercy and your grace. And that in these things that we would see the salvation of God and that we would gladly and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might fulfill the great commission to go and pursue the lost in this world, that they might understand the resurrection of Christ and new life that we might have in him. We love you this morning. We thank you, God, for the preservation of your word and for the gifting of the Holy Spirit, that by these things we might understand the work of the Lord in our time. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.